Ezekiel chapter 36 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and Ezekiel 36 this evening. Uh, just a reminder while we're turning there, if anybody is without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just flag them and they'll put one in your hand and it'll be marked to the passage that we're studying uh, this evening. Also, uh, a reminder, too, that after our evening service with VBS, Vacation Bible School, starting this next week, if you want to stick around and uh, help uh, uh, put things together and transform the entire church grounds, uh, that, would be, uh, that would be great. So is everybody there in uh, chapter 36? Okay. Um, uh, just a, a one disclaimer uh, this evening. Uh, we will not get to chapter 37 tonight. And uh, so, it's false advertising. I'm so sorry about that. But uh, the good news is we will have the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and so, we're glad, we're glad you're here for that. But there was just no way that we could uh, get everything kind of crammed in. Uh, and, and we certainly don't want to do any cramming on the on the service. While you're holding your place there in Ezekiel chapter 36, I'd like you to turn uh, to the left in your Bible to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. And I just want to share something uh, from that passage that the Lord has, I felt, put on my heart to uh, share this evening and, and, uh, at the next, uh, next Lord's Supper. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 17. And then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And so Ahab sent for all of the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all of the people and he said, How long will you falter or stumble between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left of uh, a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And therefore let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire uh, uh, under it. And then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And so all of the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. And so they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. There was no voice, no one answered, and then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, 
cry aloud, for he is a God. Uh, either he's meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and uh, must be awakened. And so they cried aloud, and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out uh, on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, and no one answered, no one paid any attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And so all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And the Lord took twelve stones according to the number of the, twelve, uh, of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, and uh, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then uh, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And then he uh, put the wood in order, uh, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, Do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And so the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And uh, it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all of these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is uh, God." There's just one thing in the passage that I think that the Lord wants to speak to one or two of us here uh, this evening. And uh, this, and it is the fact that as these sacrifices were uh, put forward and Elijah brings forth the sacrifice calling upon the Lord to consume it by fire as was kind of the, uh, the test of, of God's here in this, this particular event. Uh, and, and as the altar is there, the wood is, is there, the stones are there, he puts the sacrifice on top of the stones, and it would have taken a, a, a complete miracle of God in order to uh, fulfill the situation and uh, to consume that sacrifice. And then Elijah does something, I have no doubt, inspired by the Spirit to do so. He uh, makes the situation even harder now by ordering that uh, several barrels of water would be filled with water and this would be splashed upon the sacrifice and upon the wood and upon the stones, and he orders it to be done three times. And in essence, he takes what would have uh, required a miracle to uh, accomplish to begin with, and the, and the pouring of the water on it made uh, all of it that much more uh, difficult. I think what the Lord wants to speak to someone or some of us this evening is not to be afraid at all when a situation in your life uh, becomes uh, hard uh, and then becomes even harder still. Uh, 
and then enters into the realm of humanly impossible, where you look at the situation and you say, only uh, God can do what is required in this situation. And very, very often, God will allow situations to become uh, that dire in our lives before He acts, so that when He finally does the miracle that He intended to do all along, and, and steps into the situation in that way, it will be absolutely clear to everyone that He has done it. And sometimes, most significantly of all, even more than, than it would be a witness to those who are a witness to the miracle uh, of what happens in your life, uh, that it would be a witness that God has done it in their life. So often he will wait to that kind of a point and to that kind of a place that when he does it, it will be recognized as something that only he could do and, and that that great revelation will come to us. Because so, so often, uh, being the great materialists that we are, the great rationalists that we are, we can take even what would be considered maybe a moderate miracle, and we will explain it away. We will see God work in a miraculous way and put this piece together and that piece together, and then all of a sudden what it is that I was longing for all along has happened. And we walk away, and, uh, and we don't, or we're never quite certain whether this wasn't just kind of several circumstances uh, coming together quite apart from God and Him accomplishing it. And so God is forced in our lives to so often allow a situation to become doubly impossible, so to speak, so that when He steps in and He does the miracle that He does there, that that miracle is one in which we recognize for the rest of our lives that only God could have done that for me. And it becomes not just a miracle that occurred in my life, but it becomes a very significant part of my spiritual uh, testimony and relationship with Him. The miracles are effortless for God. God could do them uh, and does them all of the time. What is more precious than any miracle that He will do in our lives is when He does it in such a way that it is something that becomes a part of our history with Him and something that we treasure between us and Him for the rest of our lives. The circumstance is nothing, comparatively speaking. The miracle in changing the circumstance is nothing by comparison to what that miracle and that event uh, that has happened in our lives and what it has produced between us and God, what is accomplished there is what is eternal and what, what God works so often to make sure is the loudest voice in our hearts once uh, that event is, is over. And so this precious thing then that we're able to carry for the rest of our lives. And if you sit in that kind of a place tonight and you're waiting for a miracle, 
and you're longing for one, and you have presented your plans to him for this is just how this needs to work out. This would be the most awesome thing. I'll worship you forever and ever. I will thank you forever and ever. Not realizing, I think if we've walked with the Lord long enough, we can forget it in 48 hours. And so he waits, and then he steps in, and then he does this dramatic thing, not only in the situation, but in our life history with him. And when God says no to one thing in our lives that we think would be the perfect miracle in that situation that we find ourselves dire one in the middle of, it is always only because he has something even better in mind, and time will show it uh, to be uh, the truth. And so that's what I wanted to share uh, this evening. Someone may say, cynic that some of you are, say, well, that's what kind of a thing is that? I mean, that could uh, uh, minister to any number of people in any gathering of God's people and all. And to that I say, that's not my business. My business is just to try and say what he tells me to say and to leave it, uh, leave it with him. And so I have done just that. Ezekiel chapter 36. We remember that chapters 35 and 36 are a uh, kind of a couplet. And uh, in chapter 35, uh, as God made his pronouncement of judgment upon Mount Seir or upon Edom, the Edomites, uh, because of their sin against Judah, their desire to destroy them, and, and, uh, and their blasphemies against him. And God promised that uh, as a result of that, he would judge them and he would make them uh, a desolation. And uh, so the one prophecy uh, toward, uh, toward Mount Seir, and then followed, as, as we saw that last week, followed then by a prophecy uh, to Israel. And at the time that these prophecies were given by Ezekiel to those Jews in Tel Aviv, just outside of Babylon, it looked like uh, Israel was going to be erased off of the map uh, of, uh, of human history and certainly off of the map in terms of uh, G, uh, on any, uh, any kind of a physical map forever and ever by virtue of their sin. And that the Edomites and others would carve up the land of Israel and it would uh, be uh, theirs. And yet uh, God, as, as Edom is prospering at this point in time, God says, I'm going to make you a desolation. At the time, he then prophesies to, uh, to Judah here and the children of Israel in verse 36, uh, Israel is a desolation, but God promises to restore them uh, to the land. And, uh, and, and, uh, and blessed them uh, in that land against, uh, against all odds. And so every time you sit down and you look at a globe in your home or you look at a map or an atlas on the internet or wherever it might be, and every time you look at the Middle East and you see no country named Edom, but you see a country named Israel, it is a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36. And so he begins by saying, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, uh, hear the word of the Lord. And so the Lord is going to prophesy to his people, but he's uh, prophesying to the land. Remember, it is a desolation. 
Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and he conquered Judah and he conquered uh, Jerusalem three times. Uh, if you read anything about Babylonian history, you just didn't poke these people in the eye. And you didn't make him put his armies together a third time to come in and teach you a lesson because you hadn't learned your lesson the first two times. And so when they came into Judah, by the time they left it, it was a desolation. I mean, it didn't look anything like it had uh, previously. A tremendous destruction brought upon the land. And thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said uh, of you, speaking of the Edomites, not of the Babylonians, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Again, the Edomites looked at uh, God's chastening of Judah and God's judgment upon uh, Judah as an opportunity to loot the land, to enrich the land, to uh, 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 take the land for themselves. And so in doing that, there was the mocking of the Jews, the mocking of the land. Uh, the ancient heights have uh, now become our possession. And so the Lord, He uh, heard all of that, all of that mocking of, of, of her enemies, and therefore, God said, in the light of that, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, because they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, so that you become the possession of the rest of the nations. And you are taken up by the lips of talkers and uh, slandered uh, by the people. Again, the Edomites and other nations coming in to carve up Israel to themselves. And therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the rivers, to the valleys, the desolate wastes, and the cities that had been forsaken, which became plunder and mockery uh, to the rest of the nations all around. And Israel, when God did chasten them, uh, their, their, their disobedience, their wickedness, their violence, their bloodshed, their murder, their idolatry, it filled the land from one end of the land to the other. And so God uh, judged the land from one uh, end, uh, end uh, to, to the other. It was, he, his, his judgment and His chastening was as thorough as, as their sin was present. And therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 5, the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land... Uh, to themselves as a possession. Now, that's a weird thing. I mean, they feel like this was Israel's land. They took it, and God says, no, no, no. That was my land. I gave it to them, but it is my land. And so one per person, uh, you never want to steal, but you never want to steal from God and think you're getting away with it. And so uh, the, against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession, and they did so with wholehearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder uh, its open uh, country. And so he recognized the, the injustice of all of it, the, 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 the horrible heart that it was behind all of it, and it was an abomination to God. 
and therefore prophesy against, uh, uh, prophesy concerning the land of Israel. Again, he's speaking to the land that has borne such a price for uh, the disobedience of the children of Israel. And speak concerning the land of Israel, uh, for all that it still belonged to them. And say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury, because you have borne the shame of uh, the nations. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath. Anything that God says uh, is uh, yea and amen, it is going to come to pass. So when God says, I raise my hand in an oath in order to give an oath, he can't swear by anything greater than himself. He, he just uh, uh, makes the oath. You know that it's going to happen, that surely the nations that are around you shall uh, bear uh, their uh, shame. And, but to you, mountains of, of Israel... Uh, you, you shall shoot forth branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they are about to come. Now, you put yourself in that audience of uh, the Jewish people in the Babylonian captivity as they were there for 70 years, and early in those years now they hear Ezekiel prophesying to them so far away from the land of the fact that they as a people will return to the land. They had to have felt that what we have done, we deserve the judgment that we've received. We never deserve the opportunity to ever set foot in that land again. We don't deserve to ever know the life that God uh, one time, at one time gave us. We're not worthy of it. We would understand if, if we are uh, emigrants and, and uh, fugitives and the rest of uh, the nations of the world for the rest of our lives. And then to hear uh, Ezekiel speak to them, no, you will come back into the land. And, and uh, how their, their hearts must have just soared at, at the possibility of that, the grace of God that is, is represented uh, in that and in that promise. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you. And I will uh, turn to you, and you shall be uh, tilled and sown. And uh, so the land is going to be uh, fruitful under the hands of the Jews once again, he said. And I will multiply men upon you. And uh, so the population being restored to, to the land. And uh, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited and the ruins re rebuilt. It was a, a rubble at this point in time in large part. And, and everything was, God said, is going to be rebuilt and dwelt. I will multiply upon you man and beast. And, you shall and they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in former times and do better for you than at your beginnings, then you shall know that I am uh, the Lord. And yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel, uh, and they, uh, not just anyone, but the Jews returning uh, to Israel, and they shall take possession of you once again, 
and you shall be their inheritance, and no more shall you bereave them uh, of, uh, of children. And so uh, here they are and uh, brought back into the land and uh, the promise for all of that uh, to happen, and then the promise that they would never, ever be separated from the land again. Now, it is important in, in the light of verse 12 to, to realize that this is the first of, of a number of, of promises in this chapter that indicate that there is a near and a partial fulfillment of this prophecy in the Jews returning to the land following the Babylonian captivity uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, so there was that, that, that short-term uh, 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 fulfillment, a, a near and partial fulfillment, but there has to be uh, another fulfillment for it, a far and, a, and a, a, a full fulfillment yet in the future because the Jews were dispossessed of the land in AD 70 uh, by the Romans because of their rebellion against uh, Roman uh, authority. So here he is speaking about a return to the land that, that will occur in which uh, it will be permanent. And uh, we'll have to wait uh, till chapter 37 to see what, what all of that uh, is about. And thus says the Lord God, verse 13, because they say to you, uh, speaking of the land, Edomites and others were saying of the land, uh, you devour men and bereave your uh, nation of children. In other words, uh, to the land, you have a reputation be for being hard upon uh, the people who uh, live here. And therefore, God said, you shall devour men no more, nor bereave uh, your nation anymore, uh, says the Lord. And nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations anymore, nor bear the reproach of the peoples anymore, nor, nor, shall, you cause, uh, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble anymore, says the Lord. She's Israel is going to uh, dwell safely among uh, her enemies. And moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, um, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and, and deeds. Uh, to me their way was like the uncleanness of woman in her customary uh, impurity. And so this speaks of, uh, of the fact that uh, it, God is going to uh, mention uh, all of the bloodshed and all of the violence and everything that was going on and, and that they had rendered themselves ceremonially uh, unclean as a result of it. And, and their abominations are so offensive to God that he compared it to uh, the, the, the uncleanness of a woman during her menstrual period, which rendered her ceremonially unclean during that period under the, the law uh, of Moses. So they had made the whole land unclean as a result of their sin. They had defiled it. And, uh, and God goes on to, to speak about the kind of uncleanness that they had brought into the land. To me, their way, uh, in verse 18, therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed 
in the land, uh, the, the death of in, the innocence of godly people, of prophets, those who stood for God, uh, uh, cold-blooded murder uh, being uh, committed in order to take out competitors related to business deals and, and uh, positions of power, all of that going on uh, in, in the land, in a land that was called by God to represent Him as something different in the, the entire uh, world. And then also for their idols with which uh, they had defiled it. And so God speaks of the reason that He judged them for their sin, for their bloodshed, their murders, uh, for their idolatry. And so, that's a reason word, I scattered them among the nations and they were uh, dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. And so God did. Um, to take them out of that land the way that he did, uh, using the, the Babylonians as an instrument of his chastening and of his judgment, and then to remove them from the land without any human hope of ever uh, possessing that land once again and keeping them in a, cap a captivity with the Babylonians for 70 years. Uh, uh, God came in and He judged them according to their ways and according to their deeds. That was what was required in terms of a judgment to get them, a chastening, to get them to understand uh, not only a punishment related to the sin, but the time for them to realize that, no, we are to be a separated people. We're to be a unique people in all of the world. We can't be doing these things and associating God's name with ourselves. And it took the 70 years for that to fully dawn upon them and for them to, to step up and, and enter into the land and possess it with a different mindset. And, and they, they did. As we've mentioned uh, before, uh, the, uh, the children of Israel with their, all of their love of idolatry, idols everywhere, idols everywhere. He said, you like idols? You like that? You like doing that? I'll send you to the land of idols. I'll send you to Babylon. And uh, you can have idols till they come out of your nose. And, uh, and then see how you like idols. And I'll let you get real close to the kind of human beings that idols produce and see if you like that compared to the promises of what I will turn a human being into. And the Jews have many problems. All people in the world have many problems. But one thing that the Babylonian captivity cured them of was idolatry. Uh, they've never returned to it in, in the way that it characterized the land in, in, those, in those days. And when they came to the nations, uh, when, wherever they went, they profaned my name, uh, God says. When they were taken captive and when Babylon came in and they scattered out into all of this, the pagan nations surrounding uh, Israel, Wherever they went, God said, they profaned my name. Uh, the word profane is an interesting word as it's used in the Bible. Uh, we think, uh, when we think somebody uh, does something that's profane, we think of profanity, of something that's extraordinarily uh, awful. But profane simply means uh, to be common. 
Uh, it, it's something that it's a term that's associated with the with the tabernacle and with the temple. When you went into the holy place, not even the holy of holies, but when you went into the holy place in the temple, as you would step out of that temple and onto the ground, immediately outside of the temple, that land, uh, that piece, uh, that property was considered profane in the sense that it was common. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it was different from the environment that you've just left in terms of, uh, of the temple and holiness. And, and so the, 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 the great curse, and, the, and this raises the standard for righteousness with, within our lives. To be profane as a child of God is not to be an extraordinary sinner. It means to become common. It is, to be, it is to become like everything else and everyone else in the world. And the problem with doing that is because we claim to represent God, we then profane His name. We profane His reputation. Uh, we give the impression to people in the world that the God that we serve is no different than the gods that everyone else in the world uh, serves. And so God's reputation is at stake. The greatest casualty of, uh, of, these, of, of, of the displacement, the, the conquest of Jerusalem and displacement of the Jews into the Babylonian uh, captivity was not that judgment. The greatest casualty in this moment in Israel's history was not the 70 years that they spent there and the hardship of it. The great casualty of that chapter in their history was God's reputation and how they had represented Him as no different than any other God and them is no different than any other people in the world at that time. They'd misrepresented uh, uh, God, and this is what God is going to drive home uh, to them. It's a wonderful reminder uh, as, for all of us as Christians to realize that all day, every day, once anyone knows you are a Christian, whether they see you in line at a grocery store, whether they see you at the county fair, or whether they see you and I at work or in a classroom or in a workplace, they are assuming, they are seeing uh, what a proper representation of our God and the kind of human being that he intends to turn a person into. The old saying is, and it's a sobering one, and, and it's an important one. It never does me any harm to be reminded of it, and that is that for many people, we are the only Bible they will ever read. And so the importance of representing uh, God well. And uh, it is, isn't it astonishing that God has attached his reputation uh, to people like you and me. Uh, I mean, you talk about adding nobility to our life, meaning and purpose to our life, to, to be able to go through life and, and to say, I'm not just living out my three score and ten, he who dies with the most toys wins, or he who eats the most pasta uh, wins, but I get to live my life as a billboard for God and for His kingdom, for Christianity, that they, they might see uh, the wonderful thing that uh, God is willing to do with a human life 
and, and, uh, and how wonderful a God must be that would do that. But they will never come away with a longing for God if they do not see holiness, if they do not see Christ-likeness, if they see what uh, Israel became, and that was like everyone else uh, in, in the world. God said, you profaned my, uh, you, uh, you, uh, I, I, I do this. Let's see where we are here. Um, 23. Well, what if I don't want to go all the way down there? I'm still interested in verse 20. Okay, 23. You're right. And I will, you know the Jews, they have one of those, they have those little things with like a pointy finger and they put it down by the Scripture and they read it. I've, I've got to get one. Don't buy me one. I would never use it. It would just be one more thing for me to lose. Verse 23, thank you for the help, by the way. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. I mean, imagine sitting there as a, as a Jew listening to this prophecy from God uh, through Ezekiel. I mean, it would just, you'd just, it, 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 would, it would be very hard, very hard to listen to. Again, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you, before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean and I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from your idols. Isn't that amazing? And so God says, how am I going to sanctify my name before the whole world among my people in the light of the greatness of their failure. I know how I'll do it. I'll do it by virtue of forgiving them and restoring them to their former place so that the nations that then watch that will come to realize that, uh, that, that I, yes, I want, to be, I want to be, need to be represented properly by holiness, but I am also wonderfully uh, magnified and, and wonderfully, my name wonderfully sanctified by showing grace and extending forgiveness and restoration to my people when they fail. And people watch that too when that happens. So we want to give God number one, but nobody gives Him that 100%. We all fail on a daily basis. And the recognition that as we repent and as we turn back to Him, that God says, no, I have a, a second card up my sleeve. You'll forgive the illustration uh, related to sanctifying my name, and that is to now come behind you and restore your life in a way that everyone can see and see uh, the glory of it.
for I will, uh, again, verse 24, take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. How much more uh, the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't it an interesting thing it, uh, that, look, I, I mean, most of you, probably 98% of us in the room tonight are uh, Christians, and if not all. And think about the potential damage to the reputation of God in saving you and me. Really. I mean, you know what you are and what you aren't and what you were and what you weren't and all that you did and all of the things that only you and God know and really only He knows before we ever came to know the Lord. If you were worried about your name being sanctified before the world in a way that the world would be worried about that kind of thing, you'd never save a human being. You'd never want your name to be associated with a single one of us. And yet He takes all of us on as a project, and He forgives us and He brings us into His family. And then what He does in terms of sanctifying His name is uh, on the basis of then the quality of person that He turns us into in terms of Christ-likeness as a result of, of doing that. I think it's a wonderful thing. I, I think about… Um, uh, you, 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 you think about people like uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, who not only killed people, but then he ate their remains. Okay, that's a rough character. Uh, uh, all right, uh, you know, it, and so many people like that. And he turned to the Lord in the, in the final months and years of his life. Uh, sincerely, he had been exposed to Christianity earlier in his life, but did he have demons? Oh, he wasn't a Christian, but he had demons. He definitely, definitely did. But isn't it amazing how, in the eyes of the world, no matter how great a sinner we have been, within our families, within our neighborhoods, we have our name is mud in in the minds and on the tongues of every person we've known, perhaps. And then yet, when that person shows up one day and says, I've become a Christian, the whole world looks at it and says, and accepts it. They accept it. Uh, they accept somehow, even if they're not a Christian, they accept that this is not the first time we've seen this. This is the kind of thing that God does in a person's life. And how the Lord's name is never uh, defiled. It's never uh, uh, marred in any way by association uh, with sinners because of his reputation for what he, he does uh, to, to sinners. And it, it's a, a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. People will, who would never give us a second chance in the light of our history when they hear that we've become a Christian, they will give us a second chance. And not because of who and what we are, 
but because in some strange way or even by their own experience and witnessing it in other lives, they know what God does and can do even in that kind of a life. And it is changing those kind of lives that uh, sanctifies God's name and it brings Him glory. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you uh, a heart uh, of flesh. And I, put my, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from your uncleanness. I will call for the uh, grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your own iniquities and your own abominations. And sometimes I'll have, I suppose it happens to you too, I'll have a flash of, of events in my past before coming to know the Lord, even after perhaps coming to know the Lord, but nothing like before I became to know the Lord, that, that, that I lament. I, would, I, I could wish I could have uh, those hours or those days uh, back but they remind me, God redeems it, they remind me of the person I would still be uh, if God had not uh, done the miracle in my life and our lives that, that He had done. And so it still has a sanctifying influence in our lives, but it should ne no remembrance of our past should ever take us into condemnation. It should always be uh, in our minds to the praise of the glory of, of His grace. And not for your sake, God said, do I do this, says the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. And thus the Lord God, uh, says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate, uh, in the sight of all who pass by. And so they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, uh, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. And then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, uh, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. That's as sure as it gets. And thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of, uh, also let the house of Israel inquire of me uh, to do this for them. God invites them, pray to me to do this. There's something you could look at it and say, well, God's going to do it anyway. He promised it in His Word. There's something about praying for those uh, promises to be accomplished that when they do, we recognize them uh, to be a, a, an act of God in a, in a greater and in a more precious way. And I will increase their men like a flock, and like a flock offered as, a holy, as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall uh, the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, and then they shall know 
that I am the Lord. Isn't it interesting how many uh, twists and turns that uh, life takes? And that the moment that this prophecy is given, Egypt was on, uh, or Edom was on top, and the children of Israel were in a condition that um, they had to think that they would never, ever recover uh, from. And we can find ourselves very much in those circumstances in the course of our life. And, but with time and the grace of God, everything got turned uh, around. And it was Edom who would end up on the bottom, and Israel would end up uh, on the top. And the same thing, again, is true of our own lives. I think it was, uh, was it Yogi Berra who said, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. And uh, I don't know what quality of operas he used to go to, but uh, usually an opera isn't over until uh, apparently in his day a fat lady sang the final song. And it's just a way of saying that nothing is irretrievable uh, until the final act is, is played out. And, and so it is with our lives. It ain't over until God says it, it, it's over. And if we're still around, it means He still has plans for us. And He has good plans uh, for our lives. It was in this exactly, exact same context that the, the Lord declared through uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 famously, for thus says the Lord. I mean, these passages that we hear uh, so often, but, but to embrace it once again in our heart in the present tense of our circumstances. Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And God is a, definitely a God of second chances as we turn to Him and as His chastening has that uh, effect of causing us to turn back to Him. He will never, not in one of our lives as Christians, allow failure to be the final word in our life. But the final word will always be His forgiveness and His grace and His continued work within our lives. So much to celebrate tonight as we prepare now to partake of the Lord's Supper. If the men will come forward and the worship team will, will come forward now, we, we will do that. And here we are talking about all of these wonderful truths that are almost impossible to put into words, and uh, we're dealing with them from the vantage point of the Old Covenant. How much greater are all of these truths in, in measure, in height, in depth, uh, under the new covenant in Christ's blood because of the greatness of the price that was paid in order to provide it to us?